Well, one of the great pleasures of World Architecture Festival since we started back in 2008 has been discovering the quality of architecture in areas where architects do not, on the whole, have a very high profile, at least in the international architectural community. And one of those areas is uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, and to tell us about how you can design resilient architecture in Sub-Saharan Africa is Issa Diabete, who is a partner in Coffee and Diabete, who come from uh, Cote d'Ivoire, and they won a WAF a category for sports building the first year we were in Amsterdam in 2018. So Issa, welcome, and tell us about um, resilient design in Sub-Saharan Africa. Well, thank you very much for that introduction, and I will uh, right away um, start talking to you about resilient architecture mm -hmm. in Africa, and especially in okay. Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, I think what is the main characteristic of practicing in, in this part of the world is the fact that we have to deal with other challenges than the ones we usually foresee when we're doing architecture in other geographies. And um, the very first ones uh, that we have to deal with is the context. Uh, this context is, of course, very different than it is in other places, in other countries. And what characterizes this context is the fact that uh, we have a few items that I think are very uh, uh, important in the way we view architecture here. And uh, the first one is the fact that we have to design for an exponential growing population. Um, as you can imagine, Abidjan in the 70s uh, was about 1 million people. And uh, today we're flirting with uh, six or seven million people in a city that was initially designed for one and a half million people. So that, of course, creates certain, a certain number of problems. And of course, uh, in, on this image, you can see how Abidjan was planned, you know, right after the independence uh, in the 60s and how it's sort of evolved until today in the 2020 uh, in terms of planning, in terms of urban planning vision. So the vision in the process has been lost. And uh, what we see happening with the exponential demographic growth is the inability for governance to uh, still be able to uh, plan with a you know, very sound planning and very sound direction. And of course, um, in the absence of uh, government vision, um, the architect, I think, is the one to come up with a vision because we that's what we do all the time. We, we tend to deal with um, many uh, trades and we sort of turn them into something that makes sense. So um, it was for us um, kind of a priority to uh, start engaging in um, more than just creating buildings and uh, doing architecture at a different level. And another uh, very important item I have to, uh, to layer onto what I've just said is the fact that now we're in a tech world. And with a population 70% uh, being below 30, you can imagine how the tech world will, will have an impact on the architecture of tomorrow. So um, this is pretty much the way um, the cities are designed now. Um, there's very, very little vision about how do we go about urban planning what direction we go into. Uh, we need to densify. I mean, we're in uh, um, part of the world where land is scarce. Um, and we need to um, actually uh, figure out different ways of doing architecture. And um, as you can see on this image, uh, this is what happened at the edges of the city. Uh, most of the time, uh, people start uh, building and then the city has to sort of reconcile uh, the little dots uh, and, and, and join them with um, uh, roads that were not planned from the beginning. So um, 
to address this context now, we have to pre pretty much rely on other solutions than the traditional ones. Uh, we do think that in the context of exponential growth, um, the usual urban planning solution cannot work and it's time to uh, test new ones. Um, my personal feeling is that uh, we need to come back to human scale in terms of city planning. And we've noticed that in many uh, neighborhoods of Abidjan, we have some uh, village type organization with um, a chief at the center, with a central authority, which tendency to, um, has a tendency to um, create a sound development at a micro scale. So um, you have the chief in the center and then the rest of the population will follow. Um, I will now talk to you about what we do in this place called Asini Mafia, which is uh, what we call our design lab. It's a place that is about an hour away from uh, Abidjan, the main city of Côte d'Ivoire. And we've chosen this place because of its, uh, not only its geographical configuration, it's um, a, trip of, a strip of um, land in between the ocean and the lagoon, but also because uh, going away from a more formal environment, we could test uh, new typologies and test new ways of doing architecture. And um, these new ways, uh, of course, started with the community. How do we deal with the community uh, on many levels? Uh, the first level is a social uh, level. How do we get integrated into the community so we can later on uh, be, uh, be um, quite instrumental in proposing uh, new ways of doing urbanism? And uh, the other way, of course, is uh, the local architecture and the indigenous architecture that we found there uh, that will later inform the way we do now um, our more uh, contemporary architecture. So I will start with the church. The church is um, actually a community project. It was actually funded by people in the area. Uh, many people gave uh, and provided uh, materials, you know, from the roof sheeting to uh, uh, concrete uh, to the wood and um, you know to the architecture we donated the architecture as a, as a part of an effort to to make this happen and um, also um, going along we pretty much rely uh, very much on the local principles of architecture um, you saw on this first slide um, this uh, indigenous building built with uh, wooden slots um, and the reason they build that way in that region is because we're looking for cross ventilation all the time. We want to have the air go through. It's uh, tropical um, uh, sub-Saharan Africa, you know, which is uh, quite humid, over 85, 90% of humidity in the air. And uh, in order to avoid the immunity to, to stagnate inside the, the, the building, we need to create some sort of airflow. Uh, and as you can see in this church, uh, we're taking the air from below and, you know, very simple, basic uh, system um, and, and have the air go through um, up so that it can create a nice airflow inside. And here is an image of uh, the in, in, inside of the church on a Sunday. Um, but um, beyond the architecture, uh, we also uh, do some what we call um, um, local urbanism pretty much is with no mandate from any uh, official government or administration. We go about and uh, talk to our neighbors about ways or different ways or possible ways to um, sort of uh, take care of our environment. Um, how do we, for instance, uh, provide sidewalks in neighborhoods where uh, it wasn't planned by government? 
how do we create uh, parks uh, and, um, and, and um, uh, open spaces for the people in the community. And doing all of that without the help or the financing of uh, government, it's uh, usually about you know uh, walking to your neighbor and proposing and discussing, and uh, in the end convincing them to 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 follow your vision. I will now move to uh, some of the projects that we have actually built in, in this area. And as you can see, um, there's a very specific typology about how we go about doing the roofs. Uh, usually the volumes are quite simple and um, the main feature we want to have here is cross ventilation. We want the air to come in from one side and go out the other way. And this sort of cross ventilation allows the space inside to have um, pretty comfortable uh, temperature. You can also see on some of those images that um, the roof is also ventilated. Uh, what happens with a double roof is that when um, you have the heat on top of the, the, the roof, uh, it doesn't translate, tra translate in, or doesn't go inside into the internal spaces because you have a buffer zone uh, with a, an airflow that chases the hot air uh, and, and doesn't allow it to go inside. So uh, this, these are, um, uh, these are features that we've used a lot in, in, in some of our buildings. Um, here you can see um, different buildings using similar typology. Of course, uh, you can see that the spaces are quite open because we can allow to do that in tropical Africa. We don't necessarily um, aim to enclose all the spaces and we rely very much on the uh, interstitial spaces that you, know, that you have in, in between the buildings to create uh, some kind of very local feel about um, uh, the architecture that we build there. On this image, you can see actually how the, the cross ventilation works and uh, how uh, actually uh, the roof uh, gets uh, hot here gets rid of the hot hair. Um, here is another house where you can see that uh, we're using bamboo to actually shade and uh, provide privacy to the internal spaces. This is um, quite important to rely on systems that are existent in the area so that we can actually reinterpret them and um, create a sort of new typology uh, or modern typology with uh, you know, pretty much indigenous systems. Here you can uh, see how the natural um, and local materials are used uh, to create transparency and airflow. Views onto the lagoon and of course, uh, a general image of the house. And here we can see how the, the wind can actually interact with the inside, in, in, inside of the building. I'm gonna go through quickly um, another house using a similar typology, except that in this one, we're using uh, rent earth uh, to even improve um, insulation you know, uh, from the outside, um, but uh, also using the uh, rent earth as a uh, aesthetic feature uh, to, to complement uh, the, the, the typology and, 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 and uh, the aesthetics of, of this house. Well, now that I've uh, pretty much talked about what we do as, uh, as experimentation in, in, in SEMFM, I'm going to move on to actually what makes uh, um, our practice uh, specific to, um, to this geography. A few years ago, we decided to move from being architect to being developers uh, because 
this is the only way we can actually uh, act on the prerogative of uh, government by ourselves. Uh, and we also felt it was important to take license in um, sort of um, um, doing urbanism and providing new typologies that uh, we could actually um, uh, rely on in order to um, sort of give a new face of, of our architecture. So uh, we started with this first project called Les Residences Chocolat, which is um, 32 units on a very, uh, on a relatively tight space um, on 1.1 hectare. It's a um, compound where we um, aimed at, um, that first thing we, we tried to do was to densify. Why did we have to densify? Because we live in a city with um, an exponential growth, you know, moving from 1 million to 6 you can no longer uh, you know reach all the spaces that um, um, are sort of growing like mushroom mushrooming around the city if you don't densify uh, then you'll find um, that it's quite expensive to bring water to create roads electricity and all of that having to be supported by the state and, and financed by the state so we felt it was actually time to um, sort of create um, a new model uh, and um, as we went about creating the new model um, also teaching people about what uh, were the important um, uh, important subjects that we had to deal with in terms of architecture densification being you know uh, one of the major ones and mobility of course and as you can see in this um, in this section uh, what we tried to do here is to uh, get rid of the cars uh, we didn't want to have cars running around so we created an underground space uh, where we uh, parked the car and above that space we have a communal space for the entire compound and that actually has allowed the community to work differently um, the big space in between has been like um, a major feature of this compound because it sort of recreated life in a very um, in a very um, residential space, uh, res residential neighborhood, where usually people um, tend to um, have one house on about 2,000 square meters. Um, here you can see in this image how uh, dense the project is compared to uh, the neighborhood. And um, after four years now, you can see that, um, I mean, we can see that in the neighborhood, uh, people have also densified in terms of um, uh, habitat. And um, of course, in order to do something like that, you have to pretty much have your hands free. And uh, we, this is why we became developers, because we didn't want to have uh, to deal with anybody. So we sort of um, uh, controlled the entire chain from the design, of course, as architects, the design very important to us, because uh, we believe it is the way in which we can actually um, think differently about uh, an, an entire ecosystem. So it's not just designing the architecture, but designing the entire ecosystem. Um, then we um, found ways to finance it. Um, how do we uh, find local financing in, in this environment in, uh, you know, where the, the banking system is, is not uh, very alert? Um, and um, the, the third one is how do we sell it? How do we sell uh, something that is quite dense, uh, something that is quite um, uh, compact in a neighborhood where uh, houses usually sit on 2,000 square meters? So um, one thing we did, for instance, is, is to sell it as a lifestyle, you know, as opposed to square meters and, 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 and space. 
And um, as um, for financing, we um, we knew uh, we were pretty confident in the, the fact that our project would be successful. So um, we actually um, financed only half of it. Uh, and by the time we, were, we completed uh, the entire project, we had sold all the units. So all of that to, to, to say that we, we, we need to be uh, creative in the approach that we have with regards to architecture. Um, when you're working in an environment like ours, where um, a lot of things are not structured. Uh, so as, as, uh, as, as an architect, you need to go beyond your usual prerogatives and um, to have impacts on the city, to have a larger impact on, on the country and, and, and create a new, new way of doing architecture. Um, as you can see here, the house is relatively compact and um, we're pretty much uh, relying more on the environment than on the architecture uh, to uh, create interesting spaces. Uh, in, this in this project, we have about 60% um, of uh, green space um, that uh, um, sort of brings um, not only uh, a great deal of, of greenery, but air and, uh, and tranquility. Um, even the underground spaces are cross-ventilated and naturally lit, uh, so we can avoid any type of uh, you know, mechanical system and uh, sort of rely on the natural elements to, to complement the architecture. An image of uh, one of the living rooms, and uh, here is um, um, one apartment um, furnished uh, by one of the clients. More details about the bathrooms and materials. And now I'm moving to our next project. Um, having been comforted by the success of our first project, uh, we felt it was probably time to move on to not only a different scale, but a different philosophy. Um, the first one, the 32 units, was pretty much high-end, uh, the, the one I just showed you, the residential villa. And now we're moving on to uh, another project that has 226 units. And of course, it's, it is not as high-end as the first one. But um, the real interest about this project is that we can now deal with um, you know, more functionalities, such as, uh, for instance, um, creating um, uh, office building, creating retail space, um, having a marina for the entire uh, compound, and also relying on the local lagoon to uh, sort of enhance and uh, reinforce the mobility using uh, boats. Um, and that was pretty much the main reason why we uh, chose that site. Uh, so um, these are mainly apartments. Um, they're all cross-ventilated, as you can see here. Uh, that was uh, one of the major um, uh, points that we wanted to address, um, how to um, keep that idea of cross-ventilation in a more formal and more urban project. Um, and uh, we sort of uh, kept all of the public spaces uh, for the entire compound. So no units directly on the water. And uh, that allowed us to save this big promenade for, for the entire compound. Um, what's interesting about the difference in scale is that we can introduce other features such as uh, waste collection, uh, waste management, um, office building, uh, retail, and uh, slowly moving to our idea of uh, creating a uh, uh, sound, um, uh, actually uh, a, a sound unit, urban unit. Um, and, and, and for us um, to have a sound urban unit, we 
should pretty much rely on what uh, is happening in villages uh, where you have a uh, main uh, character that is the chief that sort of rules everything around them. So uh, governance is never delocalized and governance is always central. And I think this is the main, um, the main um, uh, uh, issue that we need to go after, you know, to bring back governance into the hand of the people who live in the area. So especially when you have weak governance at the level of the state. So um, a lot of, um, and I mean, a few other pictures of uh, what we see in, 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 in that compound with uh, um, sports uh, happening and, and, and again, you know, uh, ventilated uh, and naturally lit parking space. Now I'm going to move on to um, um, another development project that we're embracing right now, which is probably going to be a um, uh, project that we're going to be working on for the next 15 years. Um, we have identified this village uh, around Abidjan, which is um, sort of um, on a very nice spot, you know, very well connected with water. But the roads are getting there uh, and getting closer and closer. So uh, what we foresee is that uh, instead of development, uh, chaos is going to reach the village and probably um, contaminated with this sort of unsound and chaotic developments. So for us, it is important to uh, start reflecting about what should happen to places like these, you know, in, in, in this uh, time of exponential growth and, and, and very fast uh, development. And our idea was to restructure the place before um, the city actually reaches it. And how do we restructure the place? And first thing to do as architect, we sort of uh, took the license to uh, go and do some, you know, do um, uh, a first scheme about the urban planning and decide sort of uh, what we wanted uh, to happen there in terms of um, future development. So, um, we decided to rely on a few points uh, that we think, you know, are instrumental and are very, very important to, to what we're doing there. And the first one is to create a sustainable development model, integrating, um, you know, plural and transgenerational, transgenerational solutions, um, meaning that uh, on this uh, unit of habitat, we should find, you know, different generations and have them uh, work together. Another feature is that we wanted to have about 80% um, low-income housing. Uh, why 80% low-income housing? Uh, not because um, we want to have um, a population, a low-income population, but because low-income housing can be a solution for young people uh, who are just starting in life, but also older people who are retiring. So uh, for us, that was very important that uh, we do aggregate uh, the population, not by social and economic status, but more by their ability to sort of um, take ownership of the place. So of course, um, things like youth connectivity, um, agriculture and employment, administrative and social leisure spaces are very important to that. And um, also, as we um, developed this, um, and as we're developing this, um, this uh, place, we want to really push the idea of um, um, becoming totally autonomous with food, you know, uh, for, for instance, agriculture, use urban agriculture to do that, but also even go a step further and uh, be uh, autonomous in energy producing um, and also in 
what we see happening more and more, especially in the time of COVID here, um, the sort of reconciliation that we have with uh, more traditional medicine and plants. So um, this is a project that we're still at the very beginning of, but um, that we um, rely a lot on for our, you know, for, to, to, to sort of uh, pretty much express uh, where our vision is in terms of architecture, in terms of urban planning in this area. And now I'm going to move to some of the projects that um, uh, we've developed recently as solely as architects, not as developers because we still have to take on projects uh, as development is not enough to, to feed us and um, too much research, too much research and, and, and not enough time to, to, not enough time, not enough money to, to be able to develop them as, 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 as full-time uh, office. Um, I'm gonna start with um, the project uh, for which we, we, we won the, the uh, the sports category in the WAF in, in uh, 2018, uh, which is a gymnasium that we did in um, uh, the French school, uh, French high school in, in, in Abidjan. It's a very simple project, um, relying on cross ventilation and on just layers stacked on top of the other. And you know, the first layer is, uh, is, of course, the base, the concrete. Um, the second layer is a slab, and the, the third layer is the, the open space upstairs, and, uh, and the fourth is the roof. Um, you can see uh, pretty much uh, how the building develops here uh, when, it's, uh, when they're all put together. But um, I think the most important um, feature about this building is a section. Uh, as you can see here in the section, you have the bottom part. Um, everything is cross-ventilated, so we make sure that we open on one side and on the other. Um, the skin of the building is actually uh, perforated metal sheeting to allow for, for air to go through. And as you can see in this section, uh, the fact that we have this overhanging roof uh, allows us to protect the building, you know, not only from rain, but uh, also from the sun. Um, so we have nice shaded spaces inside, but still can uh, keep the cross ventilation happening through the building. Some images of um, the inside. Um, the, the main uh, sports room is uh, very much connected to the outside through this perforated uh, metal sheeting. Um, you can see it, um, how it connects with the rest of the school, um, totally immersed in, in, in this garden. Um, some of uh, the internal spaces. Um, and as you can see here, uh, we rely a lot on the natural elements. Um, the light, light, lighting, natural lighting is very important, but also ventilation uh, in a place where it can get pretty hot and pretty warm. Some images of the building and an image of the building in general. And now I'm going to move to this um, project, which is um, a spiritual, spirituality center we had to develop at uh, this uh, basilica. We have this huge basilica you know, that is a, a copy of St. Peter's Rome in, in, in Cote d'Ivoire. And this basilica, I mean, people in, in decided that they wanted to have a um, spirituality center not too far on the same site. And of course, um, it was a major, major political decision to decide to um, sort of break away from the architecture that is uh, sitting there right now, as, as you can see, which has nothing tropical. 
and uh, go to something more in line with what we have in, in terms of environment. Here you can see you know, what is surrounding the basilica. You see the basilica from afar and you see the gardens which are pretty green and, 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 and lush. Um, so it was important for us to sort of uh, get back into uh, features of architecture that would reconnect us to the natural elements. As you can see here, we're using a lot of um, um, similar roofs, you know, uh, sloping roofs to collect the water easily, but also, you know, to have very simple way of building that can just uh, uh, do what it's supposed to do, which is bring light and, uh, and airflow so that we have uh, quite nice temperatures inside. Um, the body of water, of course, allows for the cooling and uh, the rest of the buildings are mainly made of a um, you know, very basic structure and a rammed earth, as you can see here. Um, here is a chapel uh, inside of the chapel. And now I'm just going to finish quickly with um, this last project, which uh, for us is a major, actually, because it's addressing issues that we were never able to address um, as architects in, in terms of scale. Uh, we've been uh, reached by the government of Benin to uh, design 20,000 uh, units as, as habitat um, because there is a lack of habitat and they need to, to provide at least that much uh, units in, uh, in, in, in their uh, capital city. And uh, of course, um, when you're facing something like that, people in government don't necessarily tell you um, about, they don't give you, necessarily give you a program about what you need to design along with um, the 20,000 units. So um, our main task here, um, actually beyond the architecture, was the urbanism and uh, designing uh, major roads. Um, how do we collect water on those roads? How do we provide for... Um, an urban setting that is very close to what we're used to, you know, having like um, 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 having like vendors on the street uh, relying on um, typology, typography to collect the water, and um, and also develop different ways of of moving along. And um, major major feature on this uh, project is to um, keep it green and keep it cross ventilated. Um, and what uh, we've achieved finally is um, a model that can be um, sort of owned by pretty much anyone as long as, as long as they can pay their monthly fee. So no necessity to have traceability of uh, revenue and, uh, and uh, you know, don't have necessarily to, to be uh, tied up to a bank. And, uh, and um, so these are actually ways in which we can sort of make the model more flexible and reach more and more uh, people in our cities uh, to engage with architecture. And uh, I would like to end up with that. And uh, hopefully um, this has been uh, a, a little overview and a little um, uh, peek into what we do here and, and probably what more and more African architects should do. Thank you very much. So, so uh, perhaps I could give, ask you a direct question about the relationship between your work and the vernacular architecture of Cote d'Ivoire, as I was just trying to uh, discuss. Well, actually, it's, it's very linked. And uh, the interesting thing is that when we started looking at those systems, we realized that we did not necessarily have to rely so much on local materials, but more on the systems. Um, for instance, when you take the south of Ivory Coast, uh, the humidity is just calling for cross ventilation. So if you use rammed earth there, uh, it's not going to do anything. 
So um, what we rely on is is how do we create create cross ventilation? Is just opening on 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 both sides, on both sides that are opposed. So um, I mean, you can use any sort of um, a window to do that. So it's not necessarily relying on the materials. Um, and actually, when you move away from the south of Ivory Coast and you go up north, um, you're confronted to a different reality. Uh, less water, uh, less humidity, drier. So you'd rather rely on uh, rammed earth uh, type of earth systems that sort of can guarantee insulation inside and sort of resist more uh, uh, fluctuating temperatures. So I, I think it's really, really about the systems, you know, more than the materials. Yes, I mean, I, I, I understand that. And of course, what you're doing is creating an architecture that is unmistakably contemporary. And you're dealing with a very contemporary condition of a city like Abidjan, which has grown, what was it, from 1 million people in 1970 to 6.5 million people now, which, of course, is a yes. very contemporary condition. Yes, uh, indeed. And... Uh, I think the other, another point which I'd like to ask you about is the relationship between architecture and governance. Now, um, you have alluded to having a weak uh, central state. So in a sense, does, do you have to devise an architecture that can be a substitute for governance? Or how does it work? How, how do you uh, overcome the issue of a weak state and actually provide um, a system, a, a social and an economic system that works through architecture? Well, that was um, a question that was central to our action, actually. My, my partner was for a long time president of the Order of Architects, so through that channel, we were able to meet people in government and uh, talk to ministers about what we thought and, you know, the vision of architecture should be in, in a country like Cote d'Ivoire. But we were very much confronted to, um, to the following attitude. You know, when you're in the minister's office and you're talking about those subjects, they seem to be quite interested in what you're doing. But the minute you leave, I mean, they have other things to do. And we were you know, wondering, why should one minister rely on our vision to, uh, to, you know, to, to, to develop their program? So if we feel that our vision is worth something, we need to try and go and test it. And if we do test it and if it works, you know, then it will have the effects that we want it, want it to have. So uh, this goes to say that there is very uh, little functioning link between, you know, a uh, body of architects, you know, like the Order of Architects in Abidjan. Um, when you uh, sort of confront them to, to, to government uh, and uh, government, tend to believe that they have other things to do, things that are more urgent. Uh, and um, most of the time in, in African geographies, we tend to prioritize um, other issues such as uh, medicine, schooling, and, and what have you, rather than architecture. And we've been for a long time telling them that um, architectural is integral to all those uh, issues. So unless we as architects decide to uh, go out and test things and uh, sort of come back with a um, conclusion, it's going to be very, very hard uh, for governments to just uh, take on those issues and work on them. And of course, the fact that you're doing experimental work in Asine uh, Mafia is the sort of underpinning to all of that. You're showing that architecture, the sort of architecture you want to make works and can work in that context. And that perhaps gives you both the experience and the authority uh, to work on these larger scale uh, projects as, as developers and as initiators yourself. Absolutely, yeah. 
Good. And uh, I, I think we're, we're coming to the end of the session, but thank you very much. Okay, we, well, I, in that case, I'm going to ask another question because I think we have a little bit more time than I had okay. anticipated. Uh, and I thought maybe we can talk a bit more about where, if, if the materials you're using are not, as it were, those of the local vernacular, where do they come from? Are they locally made? Are they locally available? Or where, what, 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 what is the sort of material palette that you have available? We try to work as much as possible with materials that are available locally. Um, and um, in the process of trying to shy away from the traditional materials and uh, you know get closer to render and you know, other type of materials of that nature. But the paradox is that um, they cost more and then the traditional brick and mortar. Uh, and uh, this is, of course, the, the work of lobbies and, and the work of the, the local economic situation. And actually, it's not specific to uh, Cote d'Ivoire. Actually, if you go to many or actually most urban capitals, you will see that the, the preferred way of building is, is uh, cement and, uh, and corrugated sheeting. Uh, and that even goes um, beyond the technical aspects of it and sort of permeates the social aspects of it. Uh, if you go to a village and uh, you start building with brick and mortar, you know, people will find your building more desirable, even if even if it accumulates more heat. So there's also a lot of pedagogy to be done on, on this, um, on, 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 you know, in this direction so that people and, can and better understand what their traditional architecture is doing. Sure, and, and there's a strong tradition across much of Sub-Saharan Africa, as I understand it, of um, ordinary people, I mean, even shanty towns where they have to build for themselves, using these materials in incredibly inventive ways, ways that make very seductive imagery. Yes, yes, absolutely. And um, it's actually interesting. I, mean, we, I was doing some work with uh, younger architects in uh, a place as sort of a shanty town of, of Abidjan. And we went there, you know, thinking that we could come up with solutions. And the first thing they told us is, well, you guys cannot work for us. You don't know our psychology. You don't know our sociology. You don't know our economic system. You don't know what type of materials is available to us. Your role should be to be a link between government and us to um, provide water electricity, but don't think about doing architecture for us. <laughs> Which was a huge lesson, you know, for, for, for us as architects and uh, actually made sense because the minute you walk in inside those developments, you see that, you know, they're all organized because the state is not organizing it. So the people are doing it themselves. So they're, they have chiefs, uh, women's associations, young people associations, they do compost, they do urban agriculture. So they're pretty much uh, set on many issues, you know, probably more than uh, the, the, the more formal city is. Uh, and in, in the few minutes, couple of minutes or so we have left, can you say a little bit more about the, uh, how you're including uh, low cost housing and just how low cost is that? Is that for the very poor or is it just for people on relatively uh, slightly lower incomes, uh, because I guess there is considerable poverty in Abidjan. Yes, actually, and uh, and the challenge actually is is, um, and I was thinking about this issue recently and uh, looking at what we call poverty. Uh, really, uh, having traveled a lot and extensively in the country, uh, the minute you leave the big cities, you don't 
tend to see poverty. You see people who are living uh, sort of in accordance with their means and are not desiring to acquire other things. This is what happens when you get to the edge of the cities, uh, where you know if you live a village and you come to a city, uh, when you're living in an environment where food is free, uh, lodging is free, uh, mobility is zero, uh, to a place where you have to pay for food, pay for houses, pay for uh, medication. So. To me, this is what creates this disruption, uh, and this is actually what creates the type of shanty town we see at the edges of our cities. And uh, when you also look at those uh, spaces and you look at the materials they use to build, they're not necessarily cheap, uh, which actually uh, makes me think that the poverty is more uh, kind of intellectual poverty, where um, they're maybe lacking the means to create a sound space for themselves, because they come from a very organized environment to a place where there's very little governance. So um, actually, um, the more I think about it, you know, uh, poverty is not about the lack of mean, but um, uh, lack of material mean, but more lack of intellectual means. Uh, and the type of um, uh, housing that we do, uh, for instance, in Benin, uh, we, we don't necessarily go directly to that, you know, very low uh, end of society, but try to actually provide for the, the, the more, you know, the most, uh, the bigger, the bigger size of the population that needs housing. And as you, you're thinking about that, you know, one thing that is very key is how do we industrialize, industrialize the process of creating housing? And uh, because this is the only way uh, you can respond to the, you know, to a hundred uh, thousand needs for a new housing, uh, you know, on a daily basis. And of course, um, we're still quite experimental on, on, on those issues because uh, our governments are still relying on very traditional ways of doing housing, you know, which is like those small houses I showed in the beginning. Um, well, thank, so, thank, um, thank you. The, Sorry, th thanks very much. I think that's a great note to end on is having to be experimental in thinking about housing and how that can work with uh, 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 systems of governance and existing social systems. So, Issa, thank you very much for a fascinating uh, description of what you do and the challenges of thank architecture in sub-Saharan Africa. Thank you. Thank you very much.